Good morning. Welcome to the Christian Church of Estes Park. We are disciples of Jesus that build disciples of Jesus, and I am so happy that you are here with us today as we continue our Acts series. Before we do that, Acts is a book about missions. It's uh, We get to see today, we're going to see the end of Paul's second missionary journey. And if that doesn't sound exciting to you, just hold on. It's going to be awesome. And so we're going to be continuing on in our, in our series of Acts and and uh, as I was preparing for this message today, as we're going through each chapter by chapter, and, and today we're in chapter 18, I was, as I was reading through it, I was really taken by um, how big the world is. You're going to see some maps today of how Paul, and his, his, we end his second missionary journey, he begins his third missionary journey in this, and, and you just see how much this guy, he walked. He didn't have jets or anything like that. He, he didn't swim. He got in a boat. That was nice, but when he goes across the water. But this was, a, the world's a big place. Right? It's a massive place. And that's only one little area. And you see how the gospel just grew from there to the, all the, the around the world, every continent, every country, every language now. The gospel is, is there being preached. This is amazing. But also, not the world is just big. It over, but I also think about sometimes how, many, how big the problems of this world are. Are you ever astounded by like, how messed up the world can be? Right? If you just look at you turn on the news, I think I know the news gives us a skewed view. It always tells you the bad news, not the good stuff that's happening, because I don't know why. They should tell you some good stuff. There's great stuff out there. But if you turn on the news, sometimes you feel overwhelmed. As it, you know, this last week, I mean, there's hurricanes and there's uh, earthquakes and there's fires and explosions and people acting badly and all kinds of stuff. And, and I don't know about you, but sometimes when I look at all of this, it almost feels overwhelming. And then sometimes in my own life feels overwhelming. Have you ever felt that your world is a little too big? That the problems of this world might just be like too much for you? Because if you haven't yet, I got bad news for you, but good news as well, right? Sometimes the world is just big. It's a big thing. And the problems and the needs of this world are also big. And I think that sometimes as Christians, we, we look at the bigness of this world and we feel so small, it can cause us to become afraid and cause us to just hide and, and hold up or to give up. And, uh, and I want you to know that that's really not what God has for us. Today we're going to see in God's Word how the kingdom of God overcomes even the bigness of this world. And it does it in the most amazing way. But before we get to that, we have our memory verse for our series. Our memory verse comes to us from the very back of the, of, uh, the uh, the book of Acts, Acts 20, 24, the words of the Apostle Paul, where he says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and to complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Talk about good homework, right? So this is what God told us to do. This is where we're going to be setting our heart and our mind as we begin uh, going through this series. And I hope as we've been doing this for a month, memorizing this, hopefully it's starting to stick. All right, so here we go. Say it along with me. Three, two, one. I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace, Acts 20, 24. Now, hopefully this for you has been changing in your heart and your life like it has for me. I've been sharing with you my process as I've been applying this verse into my life and the difference that it's made. Uh, at the beginning of January, if you ever make... Um, King, uh, what do they call those New Year's resolutions? I like making those, not because I like to fail, but because I like, you know, just trying something new and, and having something to shoot for. So the beginning of this year, my resolution, as I said to God, is I wanted to become less angry, right? Because the, the brokenness of this world was making me so mad. I don't know if you see like the injustices there, just like, oh, and so I was getting really, really angry. And this is a that's not good. That's not representative of what God wants. So I said, God, I want to really resolve. I want you to, to change me. So it's been amazing how he's been using his word to do that, and particularly this word, right? As I've been uh, I shared with you the past few weeks, as I, I have the opportunity to be annoyed by people, like I didn't consider my life worth nothing to me. Every time somebody annoys me, I'm considering myself better than or more important or something like this. I'm not where the Apostle Paul was at the end of his ministry yet. I'm getting there, right? And so as God provides me opportunities through annoying people, right, I've been <laughs> learning this verse is something that continually I bring up, right? Uh, as I get frustrated, it's amazing how much, like first it was, I would get upset 
And then I would go back and remember the verse. I'd be like, okay, God. Now, and then like last week, it was more and more quickly, like in the process of getting upset, I'd be like, oh, yes, I consider my life worth nothing to me. I'm beginning to find that even preemptively, sometimes God's Holy Spirit will begin and this verse will begin like, I don't know, maybe subconsciously I can tell there's an annoying thing coming up. I don't know. But, <laughs> but it's like, I consider my life worth nothing to me. What's going to happen, right? And then my only aim is to finish the race, to complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. What's that task again? To testify to the good news of God's grace. You know how hard it is to be angry when you remember how much God loves you? Exactly how much he's forgiven me of, right? And, and what he's called me to, like his grace, what's coming next how amazing his kingdom is. God's word does a work. And I would encourage you, if you haven't yet taken the opportunity to, to memorize his word and begin to pray it and apply it to your life, start now. And to help you with that, we've provided in our, in our connection cards uh, on the very end, there is a tool there for you. It's a memory verse card. It's perforated. You can just tear that off, right? And you can take it with you this week and and every time you have opportunity to be thinking about uh, how important it is what God's word is important for you, how important it is that you are living for his kingdom, what the good news is, all of that. When you need those reminders, that card will be there. Uh, and I would encourage you just to take some time uh, to begin putting that into your heart and your mind. Okay, so as we do that now, let's get to today's message coming to us, of course, from Acts 18. Now, chapter 18, if you have your Bibles, you want to join us there because we'll be in the Word a bit today. And so that's going to be on page 773 if you have one of our Bibles. If you forgot your Bible, don't worry about it. It's the church. We have lots of them. They're back there by the sound booth, and you're welcome to take one. Um, and uh, if you need a Bible, you can just keep it. That'd be our gift to you. Now, in chapter 17, we just bring you up to speed. If you missed the message last week, you can go listen to it on our, our website, funchurch.com, or you can now see it on Facebook now. I think there's a video of it, which is crazy. So anyway, but uh, you also read the chapter. This is more important. Read the chapter in the Bible. Uh, but what happened there, just to catch you up, is Paul and, his, and co. were uh, in Thessalonica, right? So that's the book of Thessalonians, first and second. Uh, there. Now, in Thessalonica, they built the church up, and then there was an outrage mob that chased them out of town. So they went to Berea, built the church up again, another outrage mob. They go down. Paul goes down to Athens and preaches the word and builds, and, and the church begins to grow down there in Athens. And so as uh, Paul does that, he now, to uh, beginning of our chapter here, we find him in Athens, and now we see him now continue to bring the gospel to the very bottom of the Grecian Peninsula. You remember at the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey, uh, God told him, don't go to Asia, go to Greece, and how crazy that was, right? And so Paul's like, all right, so he went to Greece, and he starts at the top, and he goes all the way down, and today we get to see how he brings the gospel all the way down to the very bottom of Greece, and then he leaves and finishes the missionary journey back home. And so he completes the task that the Lord Jesus had given him. And so here's a map to kind of show you where it's at. That's the second missionary journey, and today we pick up right there, and that is Athens. And Paul leaves from Athens, and he goes across this little uh, land bridge there and goes to a place called, right there, it is called Corinth. And maybe you've heard of Corinth because we have a book of the Bible, uh, Corinthians. Isn't that cool? That's, that's the city where that was written by. So it's only about 50 miles away. And so Paul sets up the, city, the church in Athens, goes to Corinth. Now, Corinth was an important city. It was a Roman capital of that green area down there. It's called Achaia. That's like their states. So you have Macedonia above it, and you have Achaia. Now, Paul, he's an overachiever, so he doesn't just take care of Macedonia. He takes care of the entire peninsula, right? And he, so we... The Grecians and now have the gospel from north to south, and that's why he, he ends up there. Now, Corinth uh, was an important city. It was very, very wealthy, and the reason why it was wealthy is geography. If you look on there, right north of Corinth, you'll see some water. You see that? Yeah, and so you see water. That water connects all the way over from one side of the sea over to the Aegean Sea, and uh, the thing was is that people back then, if you had a lot of money, uh, you would buy a boat and you put stuff on the boat and you go trade and you'd make more money. That was an important thing. But if your boat sank, you'd lose all your money. So that's bad. So you want to take the safest route possible and going south of Greece, south of Achaia, there's apparently kind of dangerous down there. And so you wouldn't want to take your ship out there if you didn't have to. And so what you find is the trade that went, um, if you kept going west 
uh, past uh, where that little stream is, you would go all the way across and eventually run into the boot of, of Italy. And Italy was kind of important because that's where Rome was, a lot of money. And so what happened is you have a ton of trade coming through that little strait, and what would happen is that the, the boats would run into the land there, hopefully they would run into a dock, and then they would unload all of the goods, and then they would bring them over uh, seven miles to the other side where there's water, and there would be another port there, and they would load all those things up onto new boats, and then they would carry them on their trade routes to Asia and all the rest of the world, right? So this was a, a huge, think of like Panama Canal. Right? A lot of trade that goes through there. A lot of trade means a lot of money. Right? And so that was good. So this city was very, very wealthy. It was very large. It's about 700,000 people at the time that Paul showed up there, which is really amazing because 100 years before Paul showed up, the Romans totally destroyed the city. It was a Grecian city before then because it was great for trade, and the Romans were, uh, were upset with the people because they weren't being nice uh, to the Romans, and so they destroyed the city, and then they were like, but it's a good spot, so they built a new city there on top of the ruins of the old one, and after 100 years, which is a long time for Americans, but a short time for most of the rest of the world, this brand new city of Corinth kind of is built up there. Now, uh, Corinth wasn't just a, a center of, of trade, it was also a, a center of pagan worship. In Corinth, there was a temple there to the goddess of love, Aphrodite, or the Romans called her Venus. And this was a temple that there was, uh, it was pretty bad. They had over a thousand sex workers on staff. They were slaves for the worship of this goddess, right? And so people from all over the world would come in for this. And, and even as depraved uh, as a lot of Roman society was, most people in Rome still thought of Corinth as being like we think of Las Vegas, so you can see how bad it was. So there's a lot of money, but there was a lot of other stuff going on there in Corinth too. And so uh, it, was a, it was a place of uh, just open sin, and uh, it was a pretty crazy town. And so Paul goes from Athens, which Athens was like a, a center of, of culture and of rationality and of philosophy and all of those types of things. He goes from that to Corinth, which was the center of kind of uh, excess and, and sin. And so you see the gospel in two very different environments, and you see how the church grows in both. Isn't that awesome? That is, I think that's really cool. So Paul, anyways, he shows up in Corinth, and what does he do first? Well, in every other city that he can go to, what does he do? He goes to the synagogue, right? But before he goes to the synagogue in Corinth, something interesting we read in uh, Chapter 18, it says, After Paul left Athens, he went to Corinth, and there he met a Jew uh, named Aquila, a native of Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome, and Paul went to see them. I think that's pretty cool. The very first thing that we find in Corinth is not that he goes and preaches, but that he finds a friend. Now, this guy's Aquila and Priscilla later becomes... Key members of the church, you're going to see a lot of them. They were very, very influential. But this is where Paul meets them and meets up with them. Why did he meet up with them? Well, it says that they were Jewish, right? So they, they had this affinity, that the, they had a common her- heritage and faith. Uh, they were both tent makers, which means that this was kind of that they, they did to make money. So it made sense that they got together. Paul moves in with them. But why on earth were they in Corinth? Well, because this guy named Claudius, who was an emperor, kicked all of the Jews out of Rome. Why would Claudius kick all of the Jews out of Rome? Well, because in Rome, if historians tell us from the time, that there was a dispute amongst the Jewish people uh, over this guy named Christus. If that sounds like Christ, there's a reason for that. That the Jews were fighting over whether Jesus was really their Messiah in Rome. And so they got into these big disputes and things like that to the point that sometimes they would go under the streets and, and riot, which I think that's a pretty heated theological debate, and uh, you have uh, the, the emperor is kind of like, mm, nope, I don't, wanna, I don't want any part of this. And so Claudius was like, get out, get out of my city. And so he cast all of the Jews out of the city. And so some of them go to Corinth, and that's where we find Priscilla and Aquila. Because of that timestamp, we know when Paul was in Corinth, which was AD 50. Isn't that interesting? So that's why he was there. So you have these refugees living in Corinth, as well as you find now some bad blood throughout the empire 
between those, the, the Jews that followed Jesus as their Messiah and the Jews that didn't follow Jesus as Messiah, right? Now they kind of spread out through the entire, because if you get kicked out of your home because of this, you probably have your partisan, right? And so that's what we find. So Paul shows up there in Corinth, and the first thing he does after he meets his, uh, his buddy uh, he meets uh, Aquila and Priscilla. They start doing some work. Paul, of course, doesn't have anybody else in the city that he knows, so he has to, to uh, have a job. And then on his off time, he would go to the synagogue, and he begins to preach the gospel. And he reasons with them through Scripture. Of course, there are some others that are like Priscilla and Aquila, I'm sure, that kicked out of Rome. They already have their opinions on this. And so some Jews accept Jesus as Messiah. Others do not. Those who do not get tired of reasoning, and so they form an outrage mob and... Paul, he gets, he's like, listen, I'm not going to fight this, right? If you're not willing to listen, he says, your blood is on your own head. I've tried to explain to you. He dusts himself off, and where does he go? Next door. I think it's hilarious. He goes next door from the synagogue is this guy's house uh, that is there. And uh, it's so uh, he, his name is Titus Justice. He's a Gentile. He's a God-fearer. And uh, he begins to preach there. Now, in this time, Titus... And uh, or sorry, Timothy and Saul and Silas show back up, and uh, they come back probably from Thessalonica, and they bring some money, right, as support. So now Paul can dedicate his time full time to preaching, which I think is a good use of his time. So now he doesn't have to do all the tent making stuff; he can actually just really just spend his time preaching and teaching and and evangelizing. And so they uh, he's doing this work. He's uh, next door at. Uh, uh, Titus Justice's home, and guess who comes next door? Crispus. Crispus, who was the synagogue leader, which means that there was a lot of people who were over at the synagogue saying, you know, Paul, you got some fine points. Like, this makes a whole lot of sense. In the scripture, even the synagogue leader was like, yes, even this big city, this was a big-time pastor, right? Big-time rabbi. He's like, yes, Jesus is Messiah. And so he left the synagogue. And Falls says, I'm going to go next door to Titus's house, and we're going to, the church begins to grow. I think it's amazing. Not just Christmas, but also because of him, we see a lot of Jews begin to, to follow uh, uh, Christ as their Lord and Savior, which is amazing. They see him as the Messiah, and so it's amazing. But now that we're at, at, uh, at Titus's house, we find a lot of Gentiles come in, and they start to, the church really begins to grow, and it's really great. Now, Paul, I'm sure, was getting nervous. Because every time the church started to grow in a city up to this point, what happened? Well, an outrage mob, right? Isn't that what happened over and over and over and over again? Like every single time, and then they would be like, Paul would just be trying to sell truth and trying to reason with people, and they were like, they would be violent, and they would break the law, and then they would blame Paul for, for disorder and all that kind of stuff. And so I'm sure Paul was getting a little nervous because he'd gotten beaten and things like that quite a few times at this point. And so God meets him, verse 9 Uh, which I think is so cool. It says, One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. He says, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. How encouraging that would be. I love how he has to tell Paul like three times, Don't be quiet. Keep on. And so Paul listens to, to this, and he stays in Corinth for 18 months. In this den of iniquity, Paul is there building the church. How awesome is that? Now, uh, the Jews uh, take to, um, who were there, who were resistant to, to this, um, they were upset and they were like, we're going to use uh, legal means to, to make Paul be quiet, even though God had said, don't be quiet. Uh, so they're like, well, we're going to use the law to silence Paul. So they take Paul to court. And the reason that they were doing their charge was that he's teaching something that is a law that was um, illegal to teach, a new religion. Now, they're not saying illegal in their law, the Jewish law. They, were, they brought him to a Gentile court, a Roman court, and they're saying to this Roman judge that uh, Paul was teaching something that was illegal for the Romans it was in Roman law. And the reason why it would be illegal is they were saying Paul was teaching a new religion, right? Because in Roman law, there were so many religions that were already established, and those were okay, right? They were official religions. They were licensed by the government. They could practice. But new religions couldn't just start. They had to go through the whole bureaucratic process to be okay. And so what the Jewish people were saying is this following Jesus is a brand new religion, right? And so you have this guy who's standing, uh, who is the, the, the 
judge over this. His name is Gallio. He was the, uh, the governor over the area. And his decision was set precedent in the Roman area, right? In Roman law. And he sits and he listens to what the Jewish people have to say. And before Paul gets up to give his defense, he's like, wait a second, this isn't a new religion. He says, you're arguing whether or not Jesus is the Messiah of your religion. This is an internal matter. This has nothing to do with this. So what Gallo does is he legitimizes Christianity in the Roman world. Isn't that amazing? That quickly. And so then there was a, uh, a guy named Sosthenes. Sosthenes. He was the... That's hard to say. Can you imagine being him trying to write that as a kid? Okay. Especially if he lost his first two teeth. That would have been hilarious. Uh, Sosthenes. He was, uh, he was the new leader of the synagogue once Crispus left, right? And so he was the one who brought the charges on behalf of the synagogue before the governor. Once the governor says, no, this case dismissed, right? He gets attacked. And the governor just sits and watches. He's like, well, that's how you're going to handle your problems. I guess, who cares, right? And so uh, he gets beaten up. Now, later on, we see the Sosthenes. You know, uh, we find him in Paul's letter to Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you find that this guy actually becomes a Christian too. He becomes a follower of Jesus. The guy who took Paul to court. You just never know how God will work. What a cool thing. So anyway, Paul's there. Now the church is established, has legal precedent to now exist in Corinth. And so, just as Jesus said, I have many people in the city, and in this broken, very sinful place, you see the church begin to grow. And how awesome is that? So Paul stays, the church is established, but uh, Paul now wants to leave. And so he made an, a vow, so he cuts off his hair, it'd be a Nazarite vow. He's getting ready, most likely, to go back home uh, to Jerusalem. He wants to go to Passover, most likely. That's where he wants to go. So Paul has this urge. He's like, I, I'm on the clock now. I got to get back. Why? Because Paul was still a Jew. Let's remember that, right? He, he, just, uh, he was on a mission sent by the church to, to tell people that you didn't have to become Jewish to become Christian. But also, that you don't have to stop being Jewish to be Christian either because it's about Jesus. And Paul wanted to get back to celebrate Passover, and so he was getting ready to do that. And so he has this young church in a very difficult area. There's a lot of biblical illiteracy and issues that were happening. So Paul says, I can't just take my entire team with me. So he leaves some of his key players back there in Corinth while he, le- he goes. And so he leaves Timothy and Silas, and he takes... Priscilla and Aquila, two Jews who, sure, while they wanted to go back to Jerusalem as well. So that's what he does. So we'll see. He leaves Corinth. And where does he go from Corinth? That's Corinth. He gets on a boat and he travels back to now he finally gets to Asia. Remember, at the beginning of this missionary journey, God said, don't go to Asia. Now he had completed taught bringing the gospel all the way through Greece. He stops in, in this town called Ephesus, which was kind of like, uh, it's a hub city, like DIA, right? So there's boats that go all over the place. It's an important city that's in there. He goes to Ephesus. He knows he can't stay long, but since he's there, he stops over at the synagogue. He starts explaining Jesus is the Messiah. The people that are there in the synagogue were like, tell us more. And Paul says, I will, but first I need to get back home. So he says, I'll come back as quickly as I can. And so he gets in his boat and he travels again and he goes all this long journey in the water and he travels all the way back to the uh, to the coastal plain of the Holy Land. He gets off uh, the boat in Caesarea. For those of you who just came back from Israel, you know exactly what that looks like. He gets there, and then he hikes up to Jerusalem, and he has this, the holiday there. Once uh, they celebrate Passover, Paul then leaves from there, and where does he go? Well, he goes back home, uh, up through the way of Damascus, all the way to his home church, Antioch, which is the church that sent him on his second missionary journey. And so there we have the end of Paul's second missionary journey. Look at how far Paul traveled. Isn't that amazing? Well, because the Bible has weird chapters, the chapter doesn't end there. Paul doesn't just end there. Now he's in Antioch, but he knows that there's this church over in Asia that he told he would come back to. And so we find now that we switch now to Paul's third missionary journey, and there is the map that Paul's full missionary journey. He begins in Antioch, he goes through Sicilia, he goes up through Galatia. It says in the Word that he stops over in those churches that he had built before and encourages them with the Word. He travels now through Asia, the Holy Spirit isn't telling him to stop, right? And he shows up at Ephesus, and he spends a good deal of time there. And so this is how Paul travels. Meanwhile, in Ephesus, while Paul was traveling there, uh, the Word 
switches kind of the story, the frame, and saying, meanwhile, in Ephesus, there was a guy who was there, and his name was Apollos, and he came from Alexandria. Where is Alexandria? It's in Egypt, so it's south of the Mediterranean Sea, but Alexandria was a place of great learning. They had all kinds of big libraries and things like this, great universities and all that, and he was a Jew from there. So he knew the Word of God really well. He was thoroughly trained in rhetoric and things like this, and somehow he found his way all the way up into Ephesus. And when he showed up in Ephesus, he would already become a believer in Jesus. Right? So he was going to the synagogue and telling the people in the synagogue about the risen Savior right? and their Messiah. And the thing was, is Paul was there beforehand, and they had already whet their appetite. And so they were listening to him, and they're like, this is fantastic stuff. The problem was, is that, uh, you know, that they didn't have the, the New Testament written fully yet. And so you have this guy, Apollos, who was going and preaching about Jesus, but he had never been baptized. He had been baptized by the baptism of, of repentance that John had, but he had never been baptized in Jesus, and so he, had, he wasn't able to fully explain the gospel. And so he was in there preaching, and, and Priscilla and Aquila one day were in the church, and they were, uh, and they were listening to him, and then they were, like, uh, they were like, he's missing something. And so what do they do? Well, do they shame him in front of everybody? No! In fact, I think it's really cool how they go to it. Verse 27, it says, When Apollos wanted to go... Oh, sorry, verse 26... He, that's Apollos, began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Talk about grace, right? Here's a guy doing his very best, explaining the word of God, doing really, really well. And you have others who are like, oh, I've got some additional. Here's some that you're missing. And instead of publicly shaming in front of everyone, they say, hey, come over to our house. Here's some hospitality. Oh, and have you heard about the baptism that we have in Christ? No? Well, let me tell you about it. And we find in verse 19 that Apollos wasn't the only one. There were a lot of other Jews that didn't, under, didn't have this yet. And as those were baptized, we see the Holy Spirit. And it was just amazing how God worked through that. And so we find that then Paulus, who was after he understood the word of God and, and he was trained, he was very, very effective. He talks with Paul and he gets sent back over to the place called Achaia, right? So Paul sends him over there, verse 28 or verse 27, verse 28, he travels over to that region and he begins to debate the Jewish people who didn't understand Jesus as the Messiah really effectively and the church begins to grow. In Achaia, where do you think he went? Well, probably Corinth. Probably Corinth, right? Because that's the capital of Achaia. That was the place that the church was where they had a lot of debates between, I don't know, Titus's house next door to the synagogue. What a great place to have these wonderful debates. And... Uh, so that's where he was. He was very, very effective in his ministry, and the church grew on both sides of the Aegean Sea. Isn't that awesome? Now, what did we learn from chapter 18? What are some lessons we could take home from this? The first one I think that we get as Christians, the first one is this, we're not alone, right? It wasn't just Paul. Paul was amazing, right? Paul was a world-class, academic, faithful guy, able to be able to write scripture, that God's Holy Spirit worked through him, just an amazing guy. But he's not the church. In fact, look what we read in, in Acts 18, the, the, the vision that God gave Paul. He says, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one's going to attack or harm you because I have many people in this city. You understand the Christian church, uh, that we are not alone. We can't operate as Christians as lone rangers. Our faith is a team sport, right? Where none of us are equipped to do this alone. If the apostle Paul couldn't, Am I going to be able to do it on my own? No. See, Paul, look at his life and his ministry, that, that second missionary journey. You see what Paul did? He assembled a team. He begins, he's got Silas, right? He doesn't even go till he's a team member. And then he picks up Timothy along the way. And then he picks up Luke, who writes the Gospel of Luke and Acts, the book we're reading now. And then he finds Aquila and Priscilla, and then we find Apollos. Paul was great, but he was not in himself totally sufficient working together, but it wasn't just that Paul assembled around him other believers that they worked together. He also had a team, a network of churches, those that were sending him and those that he planted. I mean, you have the church that we, he started with, the church in Antioch, sending them, uh, giving them money, provision, prayers, probably writing in advance saying, I've got a brother that lives up in Ephesus. You probably want to go stop at his place. I mean, they were supporting him. 
And not just the Antioch ascending church, but then also Jerusalem. They sent him with a letter, with authority, and with Silas. But then we find that he goes to places like Thessalonica. They're supporting him financially. Eventually, he goes to Ephesus. I mean, he has a network that he's part of. And that's one of the reasons the church grew. Think about all of these churches are sending valuable resources, not hoarding them for themselves, but saying, we're part of something bigger. Think how amazing it was that, that you have Ephesus sends Apollos to Corinth. This guy is, is, a, is an A-team player in your church. This is a guy you want to keep, right? He's helping your church grow. He's a, he's a real popular, probably good-looking guy. He's a magnet. But they're like, the need for the body is in Corinth. We'll help you get there. See, we're not alone. We have to understand as a church, we are not alone. This Christian church of Estes Park, we're an independent Christian church, yes, but that doesn't mean we're independent from each other, right? That we're in Christ all together. We're all part of the same body. Think about when we had the flood. We thought we were going to close our doors and it was like really, really bad and all that. We said, well, if we're going to go out, let's go out loving, right? That's what we did. And so we pulled everything together, our resources, all the stuff, and we began serving the community. And, and think how amazing it was that we began to serve how God allowed the churches around us to serve us. Oh, we had churches in our town. I mean, the, you can see right here, there's like a line on the wall. That's, that's where they taped up and, uh, one of the other churches in town, Rocky, which is a great partner church for us. They took care. We had a mold on that back wall from the flood, and we did not take care of it, so they did. How cool is that? Isn't that a reminder of unity? Just a little line on the ceiling means a ton. Right, We had churches from Nebraska bringing people in to help muck out our downstairs. We had, we had churches all the way in Africa and Asia that were praying for us and in Europe and sending money and resources so that we could be rebuilt. And these are the very same churches that we get to support and to partner with. Isn't that awesome? We're not alone, not just as a church, but as individuals. You were never called to be a Lone Ranger Christian. If you are separated from the body, then you're separated from the body, and there's not much that you can really do. But as you connect, the body is a very powerful, beautiful thing. Now, the second thing we have to understand is that we help each other. It's important as Christians we get this because sometimes the devil uh, makes us think that we're supposed to uh, work against each other or we're in competition with one another. You know, one of those amazing things being in this community is the EMA. It's, it's a group of churches. We get together every week, the pastors. We pray for each other. We pray for each other's congregations. We share resources. We share ideas. We encourage. We're on the same team. I disagree with some of those guys on some important things, but we're still in the same kingdom. I'm going to see them in heaven, and I'm going to get to tell them, I told you so, right, when we're there. But they're brothers and sisters in Christ. We help each other. That's what we do. We build the kingdom of God. It's not my kingdom. It's Christ's kingdom, isn't it? We help each other. Look out, even in the body of Christ, not just churches helping, but also within the body, how it's supposed to be. I mean, Priscilla and Aquila, they were no big shots at the time, right? They show up in Ephesus, they're the new people. And they get there as refugees, as new people, as just tent makers and things like this. But they knew Paul, and they knew the gospel, and they listened to this amazing, eloquent orator bring the word, and he was missing something. And they said, you know what? They didn't shame him. They didn't say, this is my chance to get a one-up on you. They said, how can we help you in your ministry? So they encourage him. They bring him over, and then they explain the, God, the way of God to him more adequately. And then he goes out, and his ministry is even better. Think how amazing that is. In the church, we were designed to help one another. Jesus said the world will know we're truly his by the way we love one another. And it says in the Word that love has got to be more than just, oh, an affection or, or something that we say. It has got to be application. It says, if you see a brother or sister in need and you don't do anything, how on earth do you have the audacity to say you love that person? Because if you love somebody, you help them, you take care of them. And that's what we do as a body of Christ. In fact, every single week, it's one of the most astonishing, beautiful things as I see the members of our church care for each other. And not just in this body, but amongst other Christians in this community. It's amazing. We are to help one another. Right? And so in order to do that, humility is required, right? I said the, one of the hardest things that my wife and I ever had to do was receive 
help from the church because I'm in a position where I get to help other people and I love it. It feels really good because sometimes it is better to give than receive, right? We've heard somebody important say that once. Now, because of that, because as a pastor, I get to help people all the time. When we and my family came to a point that we were struggling, it was really hard to receive help and we, had a, it, we really struggled with it. And there was a time in this where, you know, Amy wasn't feeling great and Thomas and I aren't great housekeepers. Uh, we try, but we're not. And so we were trying to do things and some gals from the church said, you know what, uh, we're going to come and we're going to clean your home. Now, I'll tell you, that was really hard to accept. It was so awesome once we accepted it. It was amazing. And we still talk about it today. One of the most beautiful expressions of love when somebody goes and sweeps your floors. I mean, it was what we realized in that time that love is a two-way street. And because we had to receive love, we came to a point where there's no shame in receiving love. In fact, it empowered those who got to share it. It made us better at caring for other people. Right? We help each other. Which means you have to be open to help. We have to be willing to help. Just like you see Priscilla and Aquila and, and Apollos. He had to be open to receiving the help. And then he was able to offer great help to the church. This is how we work. It's not a competition against each other. We also go, the last thing is that we help each other, and now we also work together, don't we? We work together. The reason that we have that there's, there's something that Paul wrote at the end of his life, an important passage that I think that it's that we, we make sure that we really get into our life, that, that really we, we count our own lives worth nothing, but our only aim is to finish the race, to complete the task the Lord Jesus has given to us. That's work, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. There's something that God has called us to do. And so I can't do that alone. There is no way that Aaron Dorman is going to bring the gospel to all the nations or even to all the people in Estes Park. It can't happen. I, I can't even run a service on my own. We need each other. But together we can do some amazing things. So even Paul, Paul built a team around him. Look at Paul. He had Silas, he had Timothy. Man, they able to leave them in areas to build the church so he could move on, so he could do what he needed to do. Look at Priscilla and Aquila, great companions. They were able to help fund Paul's ministry, give him a place to live and encouragement and all that kind of stuff. Look at Apollos, amazing orator. Right, Be able to send him back to Corinth and to have an incredible ministry straightening that church out and helping them get a good firm foundation. Think about how amazing it was that Paul didn't have to do it all. Or, the, or Luke. Paul had no time to write this big gospel for us of Luke, to investigate everything, to write Acts. Aren't you grateful that Paul had a great team? We have a great team. That's what it says. Remember that passage we all memorized? I hope you did. Last series, we spent two months on it. That you are Christ's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Look what Paul writes Ephesians in line with that. The church that now he's parked at. He writes them later, he says, From him, Jesus, the whole body, the church, is joined and held together by every supporting ligament. And it grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. The body of Christ, we're supposed to work together. Think of how your body works. Your heart is not at odds against your lungs, is it? Let's hope not. It works together so that your body can be healthy. It's the same way in the church. We're not in competition. We can't be in competition. I think one of the reasons we get in competition with one another is the devil turns us against one another. And he does that usually through comparison, through jealousy. He's like, man, that other guy, he's such a good preacher. I could wish I was a good preacher like that. He must cheat right? And then we get mad at each other. Or, you know, this is what we do is we compare ourselves. Do you realize that you really are God's handiwork? Here's a masterpiece. You're not me and I'm not you and I was never meant to be, nor were you meant to be me. But you are perfectly crafted to do what God has called you to do right now in a way that's far superior than anybody else could step in your shoes and do. You have work to do. You're God's masterpiece. Good works. Good works. And those works are part of the body. In fact, Romans 12, Paul writes it again in this way. He says, For just as each of us has one body with many members, and those members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. 
If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. You hear it? God has authorized you, equipped you for ministry? We're to work together in this. As the church grows together, as we work and serve Him, the body grows in maturity and health, effectiveness and in love, and the kingdom marches on, overcomes everything that faces it. This is a crazy stuff. So how do you apply that? We hit some big things today, right? How do you apply it in your life? I'm going to give you three C's. Now, it's not a report card. These are just things that kind of hooks to hang things in your mind. How do I apply what we just learned today? The first thing that we have to do, once we see in this passage, we saw that the church did, the first thing they did is connect. Paul always connected. Did you see that? Everywhere he went, he would connect. He would go to the synagogues. He would find people. He surrounded himself with, with people, right? He connected to the body of, of, of faith. He also connected to the churches. And because of that, there was a lot of strength. I think for us, we read through this, that, that we recognize our, team, our, 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 sorry, our faith is a team sport, right? We're part of that team, which means I have to connect to the team. Like here in a month, I'm going to start coaching football. And I'll tell you, everybody who wants to play on that football team has got to show up to practice, Right? They gotta be there. They gotta do their part. If I got some kid out there saying I'm on the football team, but he never shows up to practice, he's lying to himself. I say the first thing we gotta do is connect. How do you connect? Well, you can join the church. That's a great place to start. We're gonna have a membership class this week. I invite you, if you're not a church member, to join us. Be part of that. It's it's fascinating. Talk about what does it mean to be part of the church? How do you connect? How do we equip you and empower you? Be part of that. There's also other ways to connect. Just officially being part of a church is not enough. We've got to know each other, right? We've got to love one another. Well, we have life groups. What they're about. If you're not connected in a life group, especially talking about this fall and you want us to help you connect, let me know. Write LG on your connection card. We will help you connect in a life group. Get to know other Christians so you can begin to connect with them and serve. But also we have to say, we can't just join the church. You've got to be the church. Not just be part of the church. Be the church. And the church is first, it literally means the assembly. Be here. Make coming on Sunday a priority. You know, this is like, we, this is our huddle. This is where we get together. This is where you get to see, oh, you're on the team with me. Great, right? This is how that happens. Make it a priority. It was a priority to Christ. It's what he told us to do. Be here for him. It's amazing what he does for you, but not just being in attendance. Be here in action. You know, we call this a worship service. And I think because we call it a worship service, sometimes people get the wrong impression, like we're here to serve you. We're not. Jesus already served you, right? Your sins are forgiven. They are forgiven, right? You've been gifted with the Holy Spirit. Gifted. You have it, right? Jesus already served. You already have his provision. You follow him. You seek the kingdom of God. He's going to take care of you. You have been served. We come here today. It's a worship service for all of us together to serve our Lord and Savior. We bring him worship. That's what we do. And so I say, be here in action. Come here not because of what you can get, but because of what you have the opportunity, the privilege to give, to give back. Second thing, after we connect, we also need to do the second thing, equally important, you got to commit, right? We live in a society that doesn't like commitments because we have people that sell us bad contracts. They say, sign up for 36 months and we'll give you this thing for $12 and after that we're going to charge you $150, right? So we, I know, we've got like a, post-traumatic stress to commitment. But it's okay. God's committed to you. And he says he wants you to commit to him. Commit to the body. Aren't you glad that you don't have to talk your ear every day to just, you know, remind it and, and to, to woo it back so it will stay on your head? You know how exhausting it would be all the time if like, you're like, well, I got to keep my right arm happy because, it, you know. No, you got to commit. You got to be there. Be part of the body. You understand that our faith is an identity. It's not a hobby. We don't wear our faith like we wear a Broncos t-shirt and just take it off when it's you know, not the right season or inconvenient. Jesus has made you from the inside out, brand new his. You are born again. So commit to him. Say, so if you're really part of his kingdom, live like part of his kingdom. You're part of his family. Be part of the family, right? First things, most important things. This is who you are deeper than anything else in your entire life. This is your identity. Find your identity in Him. And as you commit to, to Christ and to who you are in Him, commit to His work in you. Allow God to continue to change you. Right? Be here. Be ready 
receptive. God, allow him to change your heart. Be in the word. And not just you're judging the word. I agree with that. I don't agree with that. Go into the word and say, God, help me agree with what you say is true. Change me until my life matches what you say is right. Prayer, talking to God. Think about how crazy it is. You understand that not very long ago, people used to have to travel thousands of miles, go up hills, cut themselves with crazy stuff and give away food they couldn't afford to give away with the hope that a God might listen to them. And you have God in you. So talk to him and listen to what he has to say and follow him. Commit to that. Commit to repentance. You've got to stop living your life the way you would live your life because the way you would live your life leads to destruction. That's why we came to Christ, isn't it? So commit to it. Say, you know what? He's a new way for me, a better way, different way. Commit to it. Take the steps every day. And I would say this, commit to your work in Christ. Commit to the ministry he has for you. That's what that say yes is all about. If you're not serving Christ, if there's no way that you are expressing your faith in ministry, start. You are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Consider your life worth nothing. Start doing that. But your only aim, right, is to finish the race, to complete the task the Lord Jesus has given you. These are tasks to, to testify the good news of Christ. If you're not serving, allow me to help you start. And find a card, write your name on it, drop in the offering basket, right, and, help, and I'll help you connect and start serving in ministry. That's what we do. The last thing we need to do, this is, again, all of these are so important. You have to connect, commit, but you also have to continue. You can't give up. Is our work done? Is everybody in Estes a believer? No? Does everybody in Estes even know who Jesus is? No. If we haven't got our mission field done, then why on earth would we would say we should take it easy? And even if everyone in Estes has this, we still have Larimer County in Colorado, and we have you know, the western region of the United States, and then we have the United States itself. That could use some prayer, right? North America, and then the rest of the world. It's a big world. But I'll tell you what, we have got work to do. I would say most of us in our own lives, we can start there, that we have areas that are still holdouts, things that we, we don't want to give over to the kingdom of God. So start there, but don't give up. All right, let's do this work together. Let's not grow weary in doing good. Let's let God work in us and through us, and I'll tell you, we have history to look back on. You saw the apostles. You saw how the church began and continued to grow. It overcomes as we work together. So, Let's work. Let's get to it. Let's grow in Christ, and let's serve him as the body. And I'll tell you what, the world may be too big for us, but it's in no way too big for him. So how do we, uh, we summarize everything we talked about? We talked about a lot, didn't we? We covered half the world today. First thing I want you to get is we're not alone. Hear that. You're not alone. God is with us, and we're with each other, and that's more than enough. We help each other right? To realize that this is, we're not antagonistic. There is no battle between us. This is not a competition against one another. We are in this together, and that's why we work together. And as we work together, God's work comes alive through us. His kingdom come. His will is done on earth, just as it is in heaven. Now, how cool is that? So how are you going to apply that in a very practical way? Some simple steps for you? Well, I invite you to take out your connection card. On the back side, I do have some things that are challenges. These are called next steps. Why next steps? Because being a disciple of Jesus is just following Jesus. That's what it was, right? Jesus, when he made disciples, what did he do? He said, follow me. Well, we don't get to physically follow him, but we do get to spiritually follow him. That's what he tells us to do. It's just a journey. And every that journey is made by a thousand little steps. And for this week, there are some for you. Maybe for you this week, your next step is to memorize Acts 20, 24. I shared with you at the beginning of the message how that passage is making a difference in my life in a very real and profound way. If you have not started taking that step of, of memorizing, meditating, letting God do His Word, do His work on you, start there. It's, it's incredible. You, you'll be just so thrilled to see how God's work, you will recognize you're not alone, that God's Word is, is powerful and it does good stuff. Maybe what you want to do is read Acts 18, right? Commit yourself. To, it's a half a page right? It's not long, but it's powerful. Take some time and go back through and remind yourself of these truths as you read God's word this week. Or how about this? Maybe you want to pray for workers because even though we're a body, God says that we can pray for body parts. How cool would that be? Like if you could just pray for bigger biceps, right? And then God would just bring them. That's what Jesus tells us. He says that the fields are ready for harvest. 
So pray to the Lord of the harvest to send you some workers. That's what he says. Do you know that there are, there are fields white for harvest right here? I was say one of the biggest ones. If you want to pray for workers, pr- join me in praying for them. Pray for our praise place. Right? Pray for workers there. Generations being changed right there. We have lots of kids and there's opportunity and we've been praying as a staff and as pastors for this. Join us in praying that God will raise up kingdom builders in that ministry. Another area you, you could pray for us are prayer warriors. The kingdom of God, it begins when we're talking with God right and, and uh, we're assembling our prayer team that's been building and growing and there's a, that's a, so important. And then, so ask God to be bringing those people that are gifted to know how to talk to him in prayer that will be relentless in their ability, their assaults on hell as they join us in just praying to God. Ask for workers. And if you have no idea where else to pray for, pray for workers there. Join me in that. Or maybe what you need to do is you just need to say yes to ministry. Is to get off the couch, right? To, to, get it, to get into the game. This is what we need to do. For you, if, if you're like, this is what you want to do, there's a say yes ministry, something in there. All those are small steps. They're three-month commitments. Most of them are like an hour a month. They're not a ton, but they get you started. They get you going in ministry. They help you begin to see how God can be at work in you and through you. So maybe that's what you need to do this week. Maybe there's something else that the Holy Spirit's telling you to do. Write that down. Of course, always listen to the Holy Spirit. Uh, tell me so I can support you, and that's my role as a pastor. If there's another commitment you need to make, you can make one, uh, let me know about that, as well as if you have a prayer request. We pray for you every single week. Every single week we hear answers to prayer. It's so cool. Uh, you know, just because you ask God doesn't mean he says yes. Sometimes he says no, but it's good at least to have an answer, right? And so, uh, and you never know unless you ask. So let us join you in prayer. Let us join you. And so if you would have something that you would like us to pray with you this week about, write that down. And then here in just a minute, uh, we're going to take our offering. So take our offering, take your offering envelope, put it in the offering basket along with your, your connection card, right? And uh, make this an offering of your heart back to God. All right. So that's my time. What I'm going to do, though, before we take our offering, I'd like to, to pray for this and to bless you, if that's okay. And then we'll have Zach and he'll close us up with some good worship. Lead us with that. Let's pray. Father God, King of kings, Lord of lords, you are the alpha and the omega. You are big, and yet, Lord, you are small enough to fit into each of our hearts. You care about the details as you hold history in your hand. You form us together, each of us, individual, intricately, perfectly created in you to do good works. God, I pray, Lord, that you would, through your Holy Spirit, bring an epiphany of purpose in this body, that you would bless us. Lord, with an understanding of how you have made us and what we are to do. What are the good works that you have created in advance for us to do? How is it, Father, that you have crafted each one of us to testify to the good news of God's grace? Father, in that I pray a blessing over this congregation of encouragement and of empowerment. Lord, that you would rise us up to build your kingdom for your glory. Lord, I pray in that, that these commitments that we've made today, these next steps, that you would help us to keep those in a way that draws closer to you. We pray for our tithes and our offerings, a way that we worship you even with our things. God, that you would set our lives astray as you build your kingdom in this community. Father, we pray that you would do this because our world needs you. We need you. We pray that you would do it for your glory. We pray all of this in the beautiful name of Jesus who saves us. Amen.